Benjamin Franklin receives credit for the quote, nothing is certain except, you know what it says, death and taxes. And it is not advisable to disagree with such an august man, such a great man. Nevertheless, there are more or there are other certainties than merely death and taxes. I can think of at least two other certainties. One is trials, right? I don't see a lot of disagreement here. Um, and the other is temptation. Let's take the first. The man of God, Job, says, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Just as it is natural for you to put a log in the fire and sparks will naturally fly upward, so it is natural for man to find himself in trouble. Trials also must be seen as a certainty. We also need to recognize that it is not only trials, but it is temptation. Temptation is also a part of life. No one can honestly say that I have lived my life without being tempted in any form at any time. Now, James writes this practical epistle to believers. In the first few verses of this chapter 1 of James, he reflects on trials. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And talks about trials there. We'll come back to that. He then calls upon them to pursue wisdom, to seek wisdom from God. If we are to live in this world, a world which involves trials, we need divine wisdom. Wisdom is the art of right living. It is to live morally before God. It is not chiefly intellectual, at least in biblical terms. Then James goes on to give instruction in verses 9 to 11, to the, the poor and to the rich. And he tells the poor, the lowly brother, to glory in his exaltation, because even though he is poor, there is a sense that if he is in Christ, he is indeed exalted. And that is because of his relationship with, with Christ. So instead of being depressed and thrown down and found himself in the doldrums because of his poverty, he is to boast in his exaltation in the fact that he is linked to the exalted Christ. He's connected to the exalted Christ. Conversely, he says that the rich are to boast in their humiliation. And again, they are to boast, not in their physical wealth, but in the fact that they are connected to Christ, who was the man of sorrow. They are to boast in their humiliation. And the reason why he says this, it is because they are not to boast in their riches because of the brevity of life. 
Man is like a flower. He blooms for a little while, and then he withers and he dies. There is no reason then, at least no sensible reason, for boasting in our wealth when we are so fragile and so temporary in duration. Now, James returns to this matter of trials and temptation. And in verses 12 to 16, he takes up this theme, this theme of trials. And he makes two principal statements. I want to explore the first. First, that Christians who endure trials are supremely blessed by the sovereign Lord. He said, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now, the King James translated temptation here, but it appears that we should continue translating the word trials. Now, let us be clear, as I've said to you before, the term periasmus, which is translated temptation here, is the same word that is translated trials. Periasmus is interpreted and translated as either trial or temptation. And so when the, when the translators come to periasmus, they have to determine, they have to make a judgment call. Which of these meanings should it be trial or temptation that is used? But it seems that, on the, that the context here, at least verse 12, suggests that, that James is still dealing with trials, as he has been doing earlier in the chapter, where he says, at least, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And so we should perhaps read, blessed is a man who endures trials. Trials. First of all, you notice that those who endure trials are supremely blessed by the Lord. This is the first of two Beatitudes in the book of James. The second is found in chapter 1, verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, that one will be blessed in what he does. Now the term blessed is markarius, and it means to be supremely happy. It could refer to somebody who just has outward goods, where outward circumstances are favorable towards him. And that person is seen as blessed. And so very often the rich are considered to be blessed because life is favorable towards them. But blessed often refers to one who is supremely happy and in a spiritual sense. In fact, it is one who has found the favor of God not one who lives in a trouble-free life, but one who has found the favor of God, who is blessed. Now James says, blessed is the man who endures trials. Now we would think, blessed is a man who avoids or escapes trials. Blessed is the man who has no trials. That's not what James says. James says, blessed is the one who endures and here again, he uses the term hypomene that he has already used earlier in the chapter. When he says, knowing that the testing of your faith, in verse 3, produces 
patience, that is hypermeny, endurance. But let endurance, hypermeny, have its perfect work. Now he says, blessed is the man who endures trials. And the term hypermeny, to, to endure, means to bear up under weight. It is to have a massive weight on your shoulder, but instead of your knees buckling and giving in and quitting, you stand tall and strong and bear up under the load. Blessed is a man who bears up under pressure. The reason he gives for bearing up, or the reason he gives for blessedness, is now explained. For James says, for when he is tried, and the word there means tried and tested and approved, when he is approved, he shall receive the crown of life. That when one has been tested in trial and has retained his faith in God, that person, James, says, shall predictive future, shall receive the crown of life. Paul could speak of a victor's crown that one would receive at the end of a race. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.24, And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. The Lord, in fact, encouraged the church of Smyrna. He says, Do not Fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What is the crown of life? Well, we mustn't see the crown and life as two separate entities. It is, in fact, perhaps better read, the crown, I will give you the crown, that is eternal life. So that the crown that God promises them is itself life or eternal life. Eternal life is the gift of God. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him in John 3.36. But here, the Lord promises to give eternal life, the crown of life, as not only a gift, but here as a reward for persevering, for enduring in hardship. He who endures to the end will receive this crown of life. But notice, it is not merely the endurer who is promised eternal life. The, the verse continues, He will receive the crown of life which the Lord promised to those who love Him. So the promise of eternal life is given to those who endure. But those who are enduring are the same as those who love the Lord. It was the command of God that believers are to love the Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And loving God is more than mere sentimental attachment. The scriptures sum up the love of God in terms of obedience. If you love me, 
keep my commandments. John in chapter 2 of 1 John and verse 5 he says, Whoever keeps, that is, abides by or obeys his word, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. That is, the love of God comes to maturity in those who obey him. And so the way in which we demonstrate love for God is by obedience. We cannot say we love God and live in disobedience and displease him. Because love desires to please. When, 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 when you're married and you really love your partner, they may ask you to do some things that you don't particularly like. Most guys, I can say that, well, I, I think I should say that, but most guys don't like going with their wives to shop. That, that, that's a fact. Especially for clothing. And there are some stores that we wouldn't even be caught dead going into. We just are not very pleased with those kind of places. But your wife wants you to go along to shop for shoes and dresses. And while it may be very painful, love will tell you to bear the pain and do it anyway. You see, love is ultimately that which demands that you give. You give of yourself. It's not sentimental attachment. It calls for obedience. It calls for self-giving. And God has promised to those who endure trial and those who love him and those who obey him and those who give themselves for his glory, he has promised that he will give them a crown of life. Here is great incentive for standing upon the trial, for persevering in our love for the Lord. Because he has promised a reward. Believers who endure in trials are blessed. Secondly, James tells us that believers should not blame God for temptation. Because it comes from within us. And this is, the, this is what we want to focus on. He turns, I believe, from the issue of trials to the matter of temptation because these are two realities these are two certainties in life we will have trials and we will have temptations james now begins to talk about temptation he says using the verbal form let no one say when he is tempted that i am tempted of god for god cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone verse 13 james understands that as it is certain that all Christians must go through trials, so all Christians must also go through or encounter temptation. And he tells us what we ought not to do when we are tempted. There is first then, in verse 13, a prohibition against blaming God for temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Blame shifting has a very long and dishonorable legacy amongst us as men 
and women as human beings. In fact, blame shifting is so old it goes back to the first created people, Adam and Eve. You remember there in Genesis chapter 3 when God comes into the garden and he comes to Adam and he, tell, he asked Adam a question. Did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? What, was Anna, what, was, what, what do you think that Adam should have done? You think this girl, guy was going to upright, upstanding guy who's going to stand up for his wife? Right? What does he do? He, he says to the first person he could think of. The woman you gave me. The woman. Instead of saying, Lord, I, I'm so sorry. I'm so terribly ashamed. I took the thing and I edited and you told me. The woman you gave me. The woman. And by the way, you gave her to me. Is there an implicit criticism of God? Lord, it is not really my fault because it's the woman who gave it to me. And by the way, you gave her to me. We're always, it seems, ready and quick to blame someone else. In our 21st century, it is now fashionable to blame our genes. Blame it on our environment or our circumstances. Blame it on the devil. The devil made me do that. Have you ever heard that one? The devil made me do it. And some are even audacious enough to blame God himself. If God did not make me this way, then I would not behave in this way. Failing to realize that God does not create man for sin, but for his glory. So James says, it is certain that you will face trials. But if you endure it, and endure it as one who loves God, you will be blessed. He tells them, secondly... It is certain that you will face temptation. But when you face temptation, you ought not to blame God for the temptation to sin. He then tells him or tells us the reason why God ought not to be blamed for the temptation to sin. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Here's the reason. For God cannot be tempted by evil. The first reason he gives is to be found in the very character of God himself. That God himself cannot be tempted by evil. There is no dark spot. There is no moral weakness. There is nothing in God that is susceptible to sin. God takes no pleasure or delight in evil. God will not be a party to sin because he hates all sin with a perfect hatred. And so James says, Let no one say when he is tempted that he is tempted by God because God's character will not permit him to be tempted by sin. God is impeccable and perfect in his nature. There are no evil impulses in God. There is no propensity in God to do evil. 
God cannot sin. He says, secondly, not only is God not susceptible to be tempted, but that God tempts no one. Nor does he tempt anyone. Now, this, of course, does not contradict the notion that God tests his people. You, you take, for instance, the classical tech test that God gave to Abraham in, in Genesis 22. Where the Lord goes to him and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And God says, take your son, your only son, and offer him. God places a test before him. Now, I know that the same verb, test, is the same periasmus, comes from the same root periasmus, which is also translated to, to tempt. But clearly, God was testing Abraham. God was testing him in order to mature his faith. We read of God testing Israel in the wilderness, and you shall remember the Lord your God that he led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, to test you, to know what was in your heart. That is, to, to make plain what you were like. Testing is one of God's main means to lead the Christian to a mature faith. One of the reasons why we go testing is because by, by putting us through hardship and difficulties, the Lord sanctifies us and the Lord matures our faith. But God, while he permits temptation, does not directly tempt anyone to sin. He does not seduce anyone to give up the way of holiness and to pursue sin. This is why I think that Carson and others are correct by saying that God in Scripture stands asymmetrically behind good and evil. There is a sense, biblically speaking, that God receives all credit for good. But God receives no credit for evil. God is not the source of temptation or even of sin. He himself is not tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. And so the question then is, from where does temptation arise? He moves then from a prohibition against blaming God for temptation. And the reason why God should not be blamed for temptation, that is God himself cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. And then he tells us now the source of temptation. Verse 14. But. But each one is tempted... When he is drawn away, that's, that's, that's kind of, well, that's, that's not as dramatic as the Greek would want us to, to read. It's, in fact, far, far stronger. But each one is tempted when he is dragged away by his own desires and enticed. So James now begins to tell us about the source of temptation. And he says, essentially, that temptation arises from within a person. 
It comes from within us. It comes from a person's internal desires. Now, James is not saying that Satan is not often the source of our temptation. He's not saying that Satan does not bring temptation. But he is perhaps, if I may speak anachronistically, he's talking something about the psychology of temptation. How, tempta- how human beings experience temptation. And he says that temptation comes from within us, from within our desires. He says, each one is tempted. Verse 14, each one is tempted. is in the emphatic position in the verb. It comes first in the verb. Every person is tempted. Our Kent relates a story about a young priest who was in his parish and he was hearing people's confessions and he was accompanied by an older priest who was, of course, his mentor. And so they would sit together and listen to people's confession. Now, at the end of the day, this particular day, the older priest took the younger priest aside And he said to him, my boy, when a person finishes their confession, you have got to learn to say something more than, wow. (laughs) Now clearly, clearly as he listens to all the the, the temptations and the sins of people, this, this young priest was blown away by it. Wow. Can't imagine how sinful people were. The reality is that he does not have that prerogative to to go wow about the sins of others. Because all of us, our hearts, are a temptation manufacturing plant. And while we may have different temptations, like there are some people really who will tell you that they're, they're rarely ever feel tempted to steal. They'll go into a store and they will see all kinds of, they will never think of shoplifting. That same person, however, will have a great problem, however, with lust or with anger, temptation to anger. Whatever, this, whatever the, the, the kind of temptations we have, all of us have some temptation or another. James says, temptation arises from within us. Each one is tempted, whether it be by anger, by pride, by love of things, whatever it may be, we are all tempted. Now, when we talk about temptation that arises within us, we're talking about that intense and illegitimate desire for an object. Temptation refers to an intense and illegitimate desire for an object. I call, you notice the emphasis is on illegitimate desire because that which we desire, we should not have. Temptation comes from the heart. Now, what James does here is, in, is very interesting because he paints a verbal picture of the workings of temptation in the heart. He says that temptation arises in the heart, that eternal desires arise in the heart 
and work first of all by dragging one away. You notice in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he's dragged away by his own desires. These illegitimate and sinful desires work first in him by dragging him away. And this is a term that is forceful. It's violent. He's dragged away by his internal desires. Secondly, James says that the person who is dragged away is also enticed. That the thing that drags him away appears imminently pleasing to his senses. He wants to have it. It's beautiful. So temptation is described in its working as first dragging and enticing. Now, these two terms, dragging and enticing, come from one, the realm of hunting, dragging. No, an animal dragging away the carcass of another animal. Or... And enticing is actually the term fishing. Maybe we could use a fishing analogy to explain how sinful desires work or temptations work. First of all, it drags. Take, for instance, somebody who goes fishing. He puts a baited hook in the water. Here comes along a fish. It has a course, a direction that it's pursuing. But something... Something in the fish senses that there is a juicy, delicious bit of worm dangling there in the water. And the sensing of the worm drags him away so that he turns course to investigate. Remember, he hasn't done nothing yet. He's, he's all, all that has happened is he's changed direction. When temptation arises within us, the first thing it does is cause us to change direction, to move away from our committed stance. So the worm is dangling the water. The fish is going about his business, senses there's a worm there. He's dragged away. He's turned direction. And then he realizes that, oh, golly, I can't believe this. This is a worm in the water. And something in the fish says, take it. Eat it. Take it. Eat it. He's enticed. It's beautiful. It's lovely. He must have it. And eventually he can't stand the pressure anymore. And he grabs it. He gobbles it up. And he turns up a few days later on somebody's plate. <laughs> Because he's been caught. But you see, the object assaults his senses. It's beautiful. It brings with it a kind of pressure and urgency. You must have this. That's how temptation works. Drags us away. It entices us. It bombards our senses. But even at that point, sin has not yet arrived on the scene. A person may be tempted. A person might be dragged away. A person might be enticed. But he has not necessarily yet sinned. So James move on to tell us about the result of temptation. Each one, verse 14, is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire. He has changed course. He is enticed, bombarded. 
by the object of his desire. And he says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And the language he uses here, of course, is the whole language of a woman who is pregnant. So that he says that when desire has conceived, perhaps referring to the fact that when desire, when one ent- entertains the desire that has dragged him aside, that is enticing him, when he entertains it in his mind, when he cherishes it and indulges it, and eventually gives assent and agreement to it, it leads him to sin. Let me try to illustrate this. Most of us guys are lovers of cars. And some of us must admit that the more powerful the car is, the more we tend to love them. So let's think of a car like Bentley or Jaguar or something like that. You may walk into a parking lot going about your business and there sitting before you is the dream car of your life. You turn aside. You look around, there's nobody there. The owner's gone away. So you decide to take a tour of the car. You look at the wheels and the rims and the trimmings. You peer inside. You've been dragged away because you've turned away from your stated course. You haven't seen. You're just investigating. You're admiring. And you come to the conclusion, this is beautiful. This is a lovely car. Still have not sinned. Admiration is not sin. But it comes to a point where temptation is conceived. Sin is going to now be birth. When you begin to say, but you know what? I deserve this Jaguar. I deserve to drive a Jaguar. And then you start thinking, boy, I would look nice in this thing. And you put yourself there and you put yourself with the probably the windows rolled down and the top rolled down. And you, you were imagining yourself driving and people just looking at you think, oh, this guy is the best thing since sliced bread has been invented. You see, by the time you get to that point, sin has not only dragged you or temptation has not only dragged you away, it has not only enticed you, but it has indeed given birth to lust in the heart. 